This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of every best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making Veritas possible. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to both segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. Tonight's special guest is a fellow truth seeker with over 30 years of experience in alternative media, an independent thinker to the core, whose life has been tested time and time again. Our special guest is Clyde Lewis from Ground Zero Media. I know many of you know Clyde, but if you don't, I'm sure you will bookmark his name. Usually I prepare for a show, but for this one, I will go with the flow and let the conversation take us anywhere. Clyde Lewis will be with us shortly. And don't forget to buy MMS, especially at this time of the year. Don't get caught off guard. And Season 4 of the USB Drive is already for sale. How, you ask? Yes, the season is not over yet, but so that you can have it already, I'm including a login where you'll be able to download the remaining two shows of the year. That way, you can have it all complete. In addition, I'm including Ambient and Space Volume 1. What is that? Well, I've decided to compose some of the background music for the shows this year, and if you like ambient music, well, it's a bonus of about 89 minutes that I've added to Season 4. There are samples of all the tracks. Go to the Veritas store to listen and to purchase. 
And why not give the gift of truth during the holidays? Do you ever wonder if your gift goes into a drawer, never to see the light of day? Well, you can purchase a three, six, nine month, or one or two year subscription, and hopefully make a difference in someone's life. And next week, it's you and I, the 2012 Inside Veritas Special, on Friday, December 21st, 2012. Contrary to what you may hear, I will still be here, and I hope you are too. Submit your question by visiting the Veritas Members section. The deadline is this Sunday, December the 16th. It's going to be a lot of fun, and you can take the show where you want. And closing the year is someone you enjoy and love. Max Egan will join us for the last show of the year. So make sure your subscription is active so you can enjoy what's coming. And to get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. Clyde Lewis is a powerful voice in the field of paranormal news and commentary. With a diverse background in news, acting, writing, and radio, he entertains and captivates audiences across multiple platforms. Lewis's career in radio began in Utah in 1982, and he created Ground Zero in 1995 in Salt Lake City. Lewis has produced Ground Zero programs online, on radio, and on television. The program, which takes its name from the scientific definition of the term, joined FM News 101 KXL in 2011 and consistently ranks number one in the market. Lewis has appeared in a Showtime special with magicians Penn and Teller, as well as the television program Sightings, Strange Universe, and the Discovery Channel special Return to the Bermuda Triangle. He has been published in both UFO Magazine and Unknown Magazine, and has been featured in Rolling Stone. Lewis is the model for characters in such books as Safe House, Supernatural Law, and Alien Invasion. A fan of B-horror and science fiction movies, comic books, and mythology, Lewis has also published his own fanzines and co-written scripts for television and radio. He appeared in the movies Nightfall, which he co-wrote with director Kevin DeLulo, Cage in Box Elder, and Citizen Toxie, The Toxie Avenger Part 4, in which he provided the voice of the title character. To learn more about Clyde Lewis and his excellent work, visit his website at groundzeromedia.org. And directly from the beautiful city of Portland, Oregon, I would like to welcome for the first time on Veritas, another fellow truth seeker with a very interesting story to tell, Clyde Lewis. Hello, Clyde. I'm finally welcome. How are you? I am so happy to be on a radio program such as yours. I am so pleased. I haven't spoken to you in a long time, Mel. I love you. You know I love you so much, and I'm glad that I'm on your show finally. Oh, I'm honored. And you know, just folks, so that you know... It was a few years ago, I believe it was about three, close to four years ago, I was listening to, to a broadcast that uh, Clyde was, he was at a, this public place, I don't know if it was a, a restaurant or a bar, but I was listening to him and I was really captivated with what we he was saying. All of a sudden, he mentions my name and I thought, wait a second, how, how does he know who I am? This guy has been around for a long time. And honestly, Clyde, you reminded me, I think uh, this, this is a compliment. I think I consider you the, the 21st century Howard Beale. Oh, really? That's awesome. Well, I was kind of like a Howard Beale uh, back when I was doing my bar stuff. I used to do a thing called Ground Zero Lounge where I actually 
went into, I guess, uh, in many times I consider it the belly of the beast. We went to this bar called Dante's Inferno, which was, uh, you know, of course, hell. And uh, so I go into hell and talk to people, which is kind of a, a, I guess you could say a metaphor of sorts, but it really turned out to be great. But uh, sometimes, you know, you got heckled and you got a lot of drunks. And so you're talking to all the drunks, and you're talking to all the people, but it, be, it became the basis of a um, it became the basis of a, of a long-standing uh, idea that Ground Zero can be taken on the road. Ground Zero can be, you know, on the radio. Ground Zero can be on TV. We just figured that uh, the whole message of Ground Zero would be more or less, you know, going in where most people don't and opening up stories and talking about stories that most people won't and. Uh, sharing belief systems and uh, trying to honor those belief systems because it's important that we, we respect, I believe, uh, belief and, and myth and all those things that we have in our lives because that's where our core beliefs lie. And I remember during that movie Network, Howard Beale was somewhat subverted because he was becoming too vocal and getting too close to the truth. I know you've gone through through a lot of stuff in life. And I just, aside from what I read about your bio, I want you to tell the audience, because I, I know a lot of my audience knows you because they've told me, but there's a, a lot out there who may not know who you are. Tell us a little bit more about uh, yourself. Well, uh, I grew up uh, in Utah, of course, and you're Mormon until proven otherwise. So I was uh, raised in a Mormon family, um, not Mormon anymore. I actually uh, left the church a long time ago, about 20 some odd years ago. I uh, decided that I uh, had learned too many things and realized too many things in my in my upbringing. One of the things that's most interesting, and the person who had a lot of influence on my life, was a man by the name of Wolfgang Gossett, who was a priest in the old Catholic Church. And he took me on a lot of exorcisms, and uh, he took me and uh, actually took me under his wing and taught me everything I needed to know or needed to know about the paranormal. There were things I didn't understand, and a lot of it I thought was from the realms of Satan, from the realms of the devil. And I and I was frightened by most of it because I mean I always grew up with the idea that ghosts, you know, you you put a judgment, uh, a character judgment on ghosts, a character judgment on the paranormal, character judgment on the occult, and I I think I outgrew it to that point, and Wolfgang had taught me to outgrow it because he says that if you're going to be taking on the devil or taking on God or taking on any of these you know, paranormal things, you've got to understand you have a respect for them, and you realize that the power of the mind is, is the most, is the most uh, you know, powerful of all manifestations, thought forms, frequencies. And he also told me, he says, always remember that the earth was formed in the, in the way of a frequency, that it was uh, in, the, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And he meant the word meaning that is by, by thought and, and word and action that all things manifest. And so I learned that. But what really was interesting about Wolfgang Gossett was is that he eventually uh, faded into my life, faded into the past, and then uh, was uh, resurrected again when I got a phone call from Galen Cook, who happened to be an investigator with the FBI and uh, was in the Seattle branch and told me, he said, your colleague quite possibly was D.B. Cooper, the well-known hijacker from 1971. And I was shocked and saw the pictures and just recently got back from Ariel Washington speaking with the FBI and speaking with several other people. And I may just have been taught everything I know by the infamous D.B. Cooper, which is something that uh, I, I, I laugh at and think about. But uh, in the meantime, until they prove it, it's uh, it's still a legend and still something that uh, I think is rather unique about uh, what I was taught in my life. That was a very fascinating story with D.B. Cooper, and I'd like to, to explore a little bit more with you. But this is interesting with you and the Mormon Church. What what was the incentive? What was the motivation that let you leave the church? Well, I think it was a lot to do with, um, 
well, I always tell people, you know, I was a practicing Mormon. I got really good at it, and then I retired. Uh, oh, the, the thing about Mormonism is it's a good base. It's a it's a church that a lot of people believe is a cult, which I don't necessarily, you know, if if you go for the the pure definition of cult, then it is like any church, the Catholic Church, any church is a cult. Uh, I think people like to use the word cult as a as a pejorative, meaning I don't want to be a part of some loony, lunatic church. Um, but Mormonism has a good base for most people. But what it does is when you get into the, I guess when you get into the um, the, the ritualism of the church, you know, going through the temples and and, and and learning the quote secrets of the universe unquote, you you tend to understand that you know while there is a devotion to Christ, there is a devotion to God, and all those other things. There are other powers that are out there that, for some reason, I'm sure the church didn't didn't expect me to feel this way, but it became more apparent to me that I I was uh, becoming a little bit more polytheist in my beliefs. A little bit more the idea that God is an acronym for Grand Order of Developers that uh, you know our our creation was based on an agreement between you know advanced scientists or advanced uh, extraterrestrials or whatever and I and I started branching out which was not what the belief system of the church is however it's hidden. Uh, there's always the hidden belief that God is an extraterrestrial, and He is because we pray to heaven instead of praying to the ground. Uh, we 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 search out in space for God. We've built towers for God. We've done all these things for God, and so I became more along the lines of having a more, I guess you could say, polytheistic ideal of what God is. How immense it, I can't explain. How miraculous I can see. Um, and so I'm somewhere caught in the middle and being caught in the middle gives me the opportunity to be more objective with my show. And that's why people say, well, we can't figure out what you believe. And I say, well, I rejected my old beliefs for some beliefs now that are a little bit more open to the possibility of anything They can, you know, anything happens. It usually does, you know, God moves in mysterious ways and many of his believers do too. And I, and I have, I've decided that this is something that I find fascinating about life. And in fact, the paranormal is part of life. It's not something, I mean, I had a, a gentleman explain to me that the paranormal is normal. Uh, the lulls in life are what are abnormal, and, and we have tend to reverse it and uh, realize that, well, normalcy is whatever they tell us normalcy is, but paranormal is something that happens outside the norm. I said, well, for me, every day is a paranormal experience. Every day is magical. Every day is beautiful, and I tend to have a life now um, ever since I... Ever since I uh, got cancer back in 2007, uh, double renal cell carcinoma, and, and I survived it uh, miraculously, I've decided that every day is like Christmas uh, and for me, but uh, I tend to act as though every day is April Fool's Day and Halloween as well. So, I mean, I have April Fool's Day, Halloween, and Christmas that I deal with every day in my life, and I feel that that makes my life a little bit more enjoyable and a little more pleasurable. Rather than just being bored with my life, I decided that every day should be that way. You tend to appreciate life even more. Mm -hmm. And what you said about the paranormal is so true. Just because our science cannot explain it, it doesn't mean that it has to be paranormal. But the reason why I brought you to the show now specifically is because next week we have the infamous December 21st, 2012. Yes. And I want to, instead of having somebody who focuses on one area only, I wanted to bring somebody who, with a wide spectrum, you've been doing this for, you know, over... 30 years now and you have so much perspective that you've extracted from from your guests and this never-ending obsession with the apocalypse with the the end of the world why do you think especially in the united states what do you think we have that here well i think it's because of the fact 
well, in the United States especially, is we live life uh, on the edge always in this country. We've done that. And we have, uh, this country is, uh, they have all sorts of, I guess you could say, mystical ideas about what this country is. They have what I call American exceptionalism. They believe in manifest destiny. They believe in all of these ideas and things that, you know, that are mythologies that somehow keep us alive. And I, and I tend to get bitter about these mythologies when the when the realities aren't necessarily measuring up. And so I say to people, you know, you can have your mythologies about what is going on in the world, but you need to also understand that there's some logic that needs to be thrown in here as well. Entertain that stuff if you wish, but the logic is telling me that we need to prepare for what others believe. People always say, well, 2012, nothing's going to happen. December 21st, 2012, nothing's going to happen. And I'm thinking, well, you know, it, something is going to happen. You're going to wake up. You're going to see the sunrise. And then whatever goes down is going to have some special meaning on that date because we've been fortified and forced into believing that that date is something significant. I mean, I've learned a lot in the past, I guess, week, two weeks about 2012. I didn't know that the whole idea of the calendar ending, <clears throat> excuse me, the calendar ending, on December 21st, 2012, was brought about a long time before Terrence McKenna ever came out with Time Wave Zero. I mean, we can go all the way back to the times of the 20s and 30s where they were talking about it and archaeologists were debating it and uh, all sorts of other things. And then I, I was learning. I mean, it's like a fast-paced learning curve. I had done a uh, presentation uh, you know, going around to bars. And I also was allowed to speak at a Masonic Lodge, which I thought was interesting. Uh, I did a show uh, called AD 2012, The Force Structuring of the New Eon, which was more or less a Gnostic view of what 2012 would be for those who don't necessarily want to lean towards dispensationalism, eschatology, and all the other things that are involved. And so I said, here's what I see. And what I said was, is that everything right now is focused on the Mayans. The Mayans were a people that believed in the Zodiac. They believed in time. They, they, they utilized time. They, they gave direction according to how the stars moved. They said, look, you're not going to eat until the stars are in a certain position. You're not going to plant until the stars are in a certain position. You're not going to have sex until the stars are in a certain position. We do sacrifices when stars and moons and everything else are in the right position. And the Mayans believed in what was known as the 13 Bactoons or the 13 houses of the stars. We have 12 in our zodiac. However, they've been pushing the idea of a 13th, which of course is Ophiuchus, the star, the the the, uh, the actually the, the uh, zodiac sign for the snake. Uh, the snake handler. And I'm saying to myself, you know, people are not trying, they, they don't want to adapt to it, but they're going to have to. They're going to have to face the facts that they're going to realize that the people who create time, and Orwell said this, those who, you know, control the past, control the present and the future. And it's true. If the party, as he says, or the elite, control what you believe is history, then they can control what your future is. It's a, it's a point of reverse causality. And what was once hypothetical is now real, that there is reverse causality. There is retro causality where you now are seeing events happen before they happen. You're seeing them in movies. You're reading about them in books. You're hearing about the potential of these things happening. You're, you're hearing prepare, prepare, prepare. And for the longest time, December 21st, December 21st 2012 has been that point, that idea of reverse reverse causality. We don't know what's going to happen on that date. We just know the date's coming. And yet many of us are preparing for some nebulous end or some nebulous change. And when it doesn't happen, there are going to be a lot of people saying, well, what, what's this? What's going on? And there's going to be a lot of faith that's going to be damaged. There's going to be a lot of people wondering. 
But what they do need to know is it has nothing to do with the transformation of spirituality or the transcendency or anything like that. What it has to do is is that people are scrambling now to resynchronize the singularity. They're they're ready to resynchronize the universe. I mean, and there's proof of that. I mean you take a look at what has been um, demonstrated. For example, uh, Mecca has built this huge clock, and they've said, we want to challenge Greenwich in the meantime. Uh, and, and of course, the, the British are saying, no, we're not going to change our, our measure of time, but yet they're demanding it. And then you have also the Pope saying, oh, I would just to let you know that, uh, you know, recently I wrote a book that stated that Jesus Christ was not born in the time that we said he was born, so the calendars are off by a couple centuries. Centuries, uh, you know, and you're like going, whoa! And then, of course, there are these um, there are these scientists and archaeologists in Germany now that are even expressing concern that many of the histories, at least 300 years of history, is missing. Uh, I think it's from 614 A.D. to 911 A.D. It's called the Phantom Time Hypothesis, basically stating that the Church had written documents that were 300 years projecting into the future, and that in that time frame, people were putting that history and applying that history when that history never really existed. So something is missing in time. They're trying to adjust time. And I've always said that eventually, I believe that we will go back to the 28-day calendar because it's better for us. And it's something that uh, I think they're trying to push. They've been, I mean, they know how to move your clocks ahead and take them back an hour. So what, what makes the, what makes you think that they couldn't change the calendars? I mean, they did it from the Julian to the Gregorian and lost 11 days. I mean, they could, they could immediately say that it's 2018 or they could go back in time and say that it's something else. They control it. And so I think that that is what the secret of the Mayan calendar is, is it'll remind us that in most cases, and in the mind of the, of the um, collective unconscious, there is no time. Time happens simultaneously, past, present, and future, and you get to see all of it if you just concentrate and think. And you wrote this article, 911 AD, The Phantom uh, Time Conspiracy. And this is something I've been discussing here a lot. You say, what if one of the biggest conspiracies is the conspiracy to, quote-unquote, create a past that did not exist. Let me give you an example. We have many people who were born in the probably the late 90s, you know, a lot of children, and they saw chemtrails from the moment they were born. Mm-hmm. Even right now in movies, TV commercials, it's ubiquitous everywhere. Yep. So those people don't even know what a partly cloudy sky that you and I were used to growing up as kids where we saw this beautiful little sky. Now it's changing. Mm -hmm. The past has been changed because they want to tell everybody that this is the way it is. Why are they doing this? They are doing it because there is, and then what I've discovered is there, and I've called this, for lack of a better term, we have an, we have an attention deficit democracy. <laughs> uh, we have a memory hole. We have a blind spot in our, in our uh, sense of time. And it's done magically, and it's done uh, by master sorcerers who are able to go in and say, no one will remember this because in their trauma, they'll be able to forget all of it. And I know that during the time of September 11th, 2012, when we had the towers come down, there was a representation of the temporal towers coming down. And many people do not realize, and I've said this, and I've said this before, you take a look at the World Trade Center and what the World Trade Center was meant to be, not only was it a center of commerce, but it was also a center that represented the commerce time, the time of commerce, because between the two towers was a ball, and the ball was known as the Ben-Ben Stone. And the Ben-Ben Stone was the eye of God, and it was also the all-seeing eye of God that was representing the return of the sun, 
the return of the time when the sun will be brightest and the phoenix lands and perches again and rises up and resurrects. And that was right in the middle of the two towers. The same thing is at Mecca. We have two minarets, we have a stone, and people go around in the Fibonacci swirl around the stone several times over. And if you looked over from atop the World Trade Center, you'll see there was also a Fibonacci swirl leading to the Ben Ben Stone or the Brass Stone that was in the middle of the two towers. So that was a timepiece that was destroyed on 9-11, on September 11, 2001. And in that regard, it was a representation of time ending and a new time beginning. They've already, and if you, and if you just take a look at that and, you, and if you study it, you find that it was. They, they saw that as like the stairway. What was in the middle of the towers was the stairway to God or the stairway to heaven. It was a representation. It, it goes back into Masonic uh, lore. It goes back into all that about the idea of the two towers, the towers of judgment, and the stairway to heaven, and the great mystery between. The great mystery is time. Great mystery is time. No one knows how to beat time. No one knows how to turn back the clock. No one has to bring the bring time ahead. But now they've been experimenting with it at CERN. They've been doing all of these things, and that's why I'm saying this is where we are going to learn that time will be irrelevant. That eventually the measure of time Time will change, and we'll realize that we are beings that live in a simultaneous world. And I know a lot of people who listen to us probably think that life changed after 9-11. It's it almost like B.C. and A.D. We have life that is different than what we used to be, uh, what it used to be before that. Now, the, the, the way surveillance happens now, the way our, our freedoms are, are just being handed out for free because we want to be secured. Well, and, and that's true. I mean, we, we do not you, – you go back to that whole idea that you were talking about where you, you said something to the point where you said, you know, people who were born in the 90s do not know a time where the skies were clear. It's true. And, and people who were born after 9-11 will never know a time where America was so free and we had abilities to do what we don't do now. And that's the thing. They're counting on the idea of uh, – they're counting on the idea of a generation and a generation and a generation that will not remember a time where things were better in the country. And the good old days were just as good or if not better than they are now. The only problem is is that now they're 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 good old days that are met with all kinds of confrontation, uh, uprisings, anger, resentment, uh, corruption, and these are the things we're having to go through. This is uh, all part of our uh, our suicidal adolescence as a country, and either we will fail or we will learn from it, and we will we will realize that we're we're living in a way that's not not good for us. And I think that's the thing. As you know, someone has to rise up and say, "Hey, look." what we've been doing is not working and we need to change it. And, and there are a lot of things we need to change. We need to change how we view time, change uh, what we do as a people, how we treat each other, how we treat our families, and how we're basically being worked uh, so hard. I remember I, I made a comment about the Internet. The Internet was supposed to be a time saver. Now what it's done is it's made us work harder. Uh, you know, now they say, well, you can get more work done in a day. We're going to put you there working harder rather than saying, hey, I can get all this done on the Internet. I mean, the, the, if the Internet was used in the way it was supposed to be used, we wouldn't have traffic jams. We wouldn't have any of those problems. because Most of the things you do, you do on a computer and you can do it at home. 
you don't have to leave to go to an office, but it's just that that's the way we are. We haven't escaped our the way we the way we measure time. We haven't escaped the way we've uh, utilized time. We still utilize time the same way we did, even though we have tools to make time work for us. Many of us are still stuck in this nine to five mentality that we need to drop, and I think that that's the point. The only way we're going to be productive is if they are able to, you know, find a way to utilize time better. I remember in the late 80s, early 90s, I read two books. One was called The Popcorn Report, and another one was Mega Trends. And I remember how they talked about how in the future, with the advent of a computer network, this is before the internet, they talked about how people would be creating cocoons. You'll be working from home. You would never have to leave home. You will watch your movies. You will interact with people, make your purchases online, etc. And this has happened. But I think the internet probably may have gotten out of hand for those who design it for the purpose of controlling the population. Isn't the internet the new Gutenberg press, the new revolutionary way for people to, to be informed, but at the same time be misled? I think it, I think you're right in, in a lot of ways. And I think also uh, everybody's saying, well, when's the revolution going to begin? I think that this is the release valve. I think the internet is a release valve to keep revolutions from happening. I think that people can get their, you know, they get their frustrations out on a social network a lot quicker than they can taking it to the streets. I think they can utilize social networks to get people to rally around. I mean, you take a look at what happened when all these secessions were going down and people were just signing their names to some petition. They had no idea what the petition was for. They just knew that they were angry and they wanted to sign a petition. Well, where's that going to go? It's just going to go right into the ether. No one's going to care. It was just put on the internet for a release valve. And I think that's a lot of what it's about. It's the idea that, you know, the internet is also uh, a way to, once again, manipulate time because what used to take centuries to manipulate, uh, you know, create histories, destroy histories, create legends, fake legends, create more myths and whatever, took centuries to do. Now it takes about 10 years, maybe even less. It may even take less because of what the media can do for you. They can create, they can create a history They can put it on the internet or they can put it in a, in a movie and they can display it for everybody to see and that movie will impact them and they'll say, well, that's the way history is because what is history anyway for anybody? What history is, is it's it's more or less a few flickers and, and, and uh, bright flashes and electronic images that have been put into your head and most of uh, the things that you say, well, yeah, I remember the 50s. Yeah, why? You remember the 50s because you saw it on the History Channel? Were you born then? <laughs> no. Or the 60s? I mean, the 60s are all some mythology that have been created uh, by the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, and uh, several other specials. I mean, it's a, I, I, I hate to see what uh, generational TV shows or what generational movies or such are made by the generation that lived through the year 2000. I mean, what? Are we going to reflect on 9-11 all the time? Is that, is that the thing that's going to keep us there? Because that's the thing. I mean, you can go back to Happy Days and watch the 50s on Happy Days. You can go and watch that 70s show and see that version of the 70s. You can see all those things. But then, but then what happens is, is that you, you turn around and you, and you say to yourself, well, what are they going to do for the people who lived through the year 2000? What kind of generational uh, remembrance are they going to have? Oh, okay. They're going to remember that, yeah, the you know, music was violent. The corruption was had in, in government. And we have the Twin Towers to sit there and remember. It's, it's just something that I don't know if anybody really wants to remember the first parts of the history of the 21st century. Right now, you turn on the TV, and I call it 21st century pure American literature with all these reality TV shows. But as you very well said, the release valve, that is so important. For example, we have Ron Paul, Facebook, YouTube, you name them. Are these all release valves? And we also have other radio shows out there claiming to be alternative media. 
someone with a bullhorn claiming to be the representative of the people. Mm-hmm. Are all these release valves, and when it comes to the characters, are they controlled opposition? I would agree. I, I always tell people, you know, my biggest, biggest criticism of bullhorning is that it doesn't get anything done. It just makes you an annoying, uh, pardon the expression, ass. And I just, it, it does. It just makes, I mean, um, and, and the thing is, is to say that you're the representative that's going to take down the new world order, or you're the person that's going to be the, the chief component of creating, a, you know, this this uh, this uh, people's front against them is, is ludicrous. I, I do a talk show, and I bring these things up, and when people say, well, we need somebody to take the helm and do this and this and this, I say, well, I'm not that guy. I said, I'm a talk show host. I'm not some guy that's going to, you know, I'm not on a crusade. I'm just here reporting what I see. I'm just here uh, creating an entertaining way for you to think, at least for once, and to say to yourself that the world is not all what you think it is. It's, a, it's an infinite structure that people tend to take on with finite ideals. And you can't do that because you need to understand that what the belief systems of the elite are, the belief systems you need to be aware of. And if you decide that they're not going to affect you because your Christianity is going to pull you through, or your Islamic beliefs are going to pull you through, or your, your Judaic beliefs are going to pull you through, then you're, you're basically missing the point. You know, you need to be aware of what they believe. You need to be aware that um, for the longest time, uh, there were sorcerers and magicians and black magicians and and causal engineers that brought about espionage, uh, CIA intelligence, NSA intelligence. All these things are all part of some mystical dark realm within government, and that is what they use them for. Uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad uh, recently, they arrested two of his associates because they were conjuring jinn to try and bring down uh, his rivals. Um, and people are saying, are you kidding me? No, it's real. The whole spirit world and the dimensional world, very real. And they know it and they utilize it. I'm sure Barack Obama uses it. We know that it's been used in the White House before. Heck, we even know that Barack Obama's, uh, one of his relatives was practicing voodoo in the White House. So, I mean, if that's what's going on, we need to wake up to that. It's not that I'm trying to bring down anybody and say, oh, shame on him. What I'm saying is, is this is reality and it's going on and, and it doesn't make the front page news. It, it gets buried because people tend to have you know, judgments and, and character judgments on it. But you know what? Neither good nor bad nor indifferent. These things are happening and we need to be aware of it. Yeah, Nancy and, and Ronald Reagan used it too. And why is it okay for them to use it and for the rest not to use it? Why do they demonize all these spiritual practices that we call them? Because if you figure out what the magicians use, you figure out how the tricks are carried out. They don't want you to know the magician's secrets. They only want initiates to know the magician's secrets. That's what makes them powerful. If you learn the magician's secrets, you, if you know how the dealer deals the cards, then chances are you're going to win at the blackjack table. That's the point. You think the house is going to teach you how their dealers work? No. But if you find out how the dealers work, it sure makes for good playing when you're in Las Vegas. And then again, the pit bosses come and tell you to go away. But still, at least you walk away knowing that you at least outsmarted those who are in control of everything. Who's controlling the game? They are. Do you want to be a game changer or do you want to be the person who just watches the game from a distance? I think that it's wise for everybody to think that they have the power to change the game and control the game on their own. So it's time to be a game changer rather than being the person observing the game. And I can't see of a more intimate way to wake people up than what you were doing until recently. I don't know if you're still doing it, the, the Ground Zero Lounge, when you were going out there to bars and, and waking people up that probably didn't even expect to hear what you were saying. Give us some highlights of what you experienced during that time. 
Uh, many times. I'll tell you some of the greatest highlights of all, but many times it was an idea of people coming in not expecting. I mean, this is something they didn't expect. Uh, one of the most important uh, moments in the Ground Zero Lounge history was I was getting up and I was talking uh, about uh, a number of things, and a woman was sitting in the audience, and I thought she was heckling me. And I said to her, I said, look, I can't hear you. You need to come to the microphone and speak to me so I know what you're saying. Instead of speaking to me on the microphone, she rushed the stage, jumped on stage. I looked at her, and I realized who she was. She was Pink, the singer. Pink. Pink the singer was in an audience one night at the Ground Zero Lounge, and I was shocked. Yeah. And I said, I looked at her, and I'm going, I whispered in her ear, and I said, are you pink? And she nodded at me, and I said, can I tell my audience who you are? And she says, no. And I said, well, what do I say? And she says, why don't you give them my real name? My real name is Alicia. And I go, what's your last name? She's Alicia Moore. I said, okay, I'll do that. And so I got up, and I said, Alicia Moore wants to speak. And she spoke. And then she belted out. I said, you got to do something to at least, I mean, you're here, you know, and I want, and I love your music. You're, you're wonderful. I mean, you're a Grammy Award winner. I mean, and you're on my stage. What are you going to do? And she actually sang a song called Dear Mr. President. The song had never been on an album. She said she was going to go sing it with the Indigo Girls in Europe. And she performed it for my audience. And that was a special moment for me because I realized that, you know, I didn't realize who all was listening to me, who all has been listening to me, and who I touch and who I affect. In fact, I actually, uh, one of the other uh, great things, I mean, besides you, Mel, uh, hearing my shows, and uh, and I didn't know that uh, you were you you were aware of me, and I was so flattered to hear you were. Um, there was a uh, actually Eric Roberts, the uh, the 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 actor, actually uh, had been a big fan of my show for a long period of time. Julia Roberts' brother. Yeah, Julia Roberts' brother. Yeah, Eric yeah. Roberts has been a fan of my show for a long time. I didn't even know it. I was uh, I was surprised. He, he wrote me a letter, and I was like, "Wow, Eric Roberts just wrote me a letter." I had him on the program to talk about his hauntings that he had in his home, he and his wife, um, and. Um, so you never know who you touch, you never know who you speak to, and uh, and that's the thing is that you know when you're doing something like this, it, it you have to understand that what you do and how you are matters. You need to realize that you do make a difference. That you could be the domino that sets everything falling. That you you are a game changer. Everyone out there is a game changer, whether they know it or not. They, whatever they do makes a difference. The level of responsibility that we have in doing this and in this just landed on me from the ether, if you will, a few years ago. And I was doing this as a hobby, but it turned out to be more of a, a moral responsibility. And now I get email from people and I think, my goodness, they are listening to me? Mm -hmm. Like Pink listening to you and Eric Roberts. When you hear that, we have a debate in our forum. A few years ago, I interviewed Michael Tassarian, who you probably know, and he was telling me we should not be waking people up because people's destiny may be to be asleep. And for, for some time, I consider that. But then I said to myself, there should be a way to wake people up in a more subtle manner, almost like taking the, the horse to water and let the, the horse drink. Well, we have this debate going on our forum right now to wake people up or not to wake people up. And it's because people feel exhausted. People feel frustrated. And I keep mentioning chemtrails because it's, it's almost on top of my list right now, Clyde. You see these planes flying over the cities and you point it to people and they just say, what? What? That's just condensation. So to wake people up or not to wake people up, what do you say? I say we admit that they are awake. Some people, though, don't know how to apply themselves once they wake up. 
I mean, I know when I wake up in the morning, I don't know what I'm going to do first, either put on my clothes, take a shower or shave. I just know that I want a cup of coffee. That's what I think. I just say that if you're awake, it's how you apply it. I would say, you see, because here's the thing that it was always frustrating to me. I would say, and and this is a this is just me pulling out of my head. I would say that 75 to 80 percent of the American people either think for sure that 9/11 was an inside job, or they have their doubts about the official story. Okay, but yet everybody has turned this into a cult. They've turned it into a religion. 9/11 was an inside job. 9/11 was an inside job. Everything's all surrounded about 9/11. It's a 9 because this is how they deal with their anger. This is how they deal with their their frustrations because they feel like they're not being heard. All right, you've got good. You've got uh, 80%. You know, let the other 20% think that the, what they're thinking. Sometimes you got to be satisfied with 80%. Um, you got to be satisfied because there are people that aren't going to budge. They're just not going to. And uh, and so what you do is you just kind of reserve and you say to yourself, well, you know, I know what I know. And uh, eventually either it will manifest itself to where there's no doubt or, uh, you know, or I can just let it go and say, you know, there's the 20% that's never going to come along. Because after all, even when it came time to make the decision, when God made the decision, what, we had two-thirds that became fallen angels or one-third that became fallen angels and the others were with God? God had to at least give up two-thirds of the people that didn't believe what he had to say when the when the whole thing went down. So we had those fallen angels that just continued to pester mankind, if you believe in the myth, or if you believe in the reality of it all. So you just say to yourself, even God has to say, well, I've got to give up at least two-thirds or a third. I mean, I know that not everybody's going to believe what I have to say. Not everybody's going to believe uh, that I'm out there, you know, looking after the planet and, and in control. Not everybody's going to think that. So we have to think a little bit like God would think. You know, have temperance and tolerance and, and patience and and uh, and not be so angry when people don't necessarily believe like we do. Um, what I get angry with is not the fact that people don't believe what I say or, or want to challenge what I say. I get angry when they when they uh, get into ad hominem arguments or they become insulting or they do all those things. That's where I get angry. I get angry with that all the time. And and people say, well, he hangs up on people that don't agree with him. No, I don't. I hang up on people that become insulting and ad hominem arguers. I don't like that. Either you can argue on the basis of, of your realities or you can you can do something else. Absolutely. And we go back to the release valve. I think this is the, the, the new practice. And 9-11 is a prime example. And Lenin said it best. He said the best way to control the opposition is to lead it ourselves. So that's the way they're doing it. And, and for example, now we have a two-party system in the United States. We think we have democracy. But isn't this a two-party dictatorship? I mean, take the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, and we have the National Resource Preparedness Act, two executive orders that pass under our noses and nobody said a thing. Well, here's the deal that we need to understand. This whole parties, two-party system is an, is, is an insult to intelligence, and it's always been an insult to intelligence because, you know, when the jackboot kicks in your door, I don't think you care if it's a right or left foot doing it. Um, I think that uh, the left wing and the right wing make the bird of fascism fly correctly. Uh, these are the things that we need to understand. The party system is insane because it's based on nothing. It's just what they want to do is they want to make it look like it's a big football game and that we're all cheering on the side of our, our candidate and we're, we're hoping that he will do what we, what we want him to. But they never do. And so we need to understand that, you know, there's really no choice. And that's, I think that is the biggest evil of all. I think, you know, if they ever say, well, Clyde, what do you define evil? Well, I define evil is when they offer you a choice and it's really not a choice. 
that it appears to be a choice, but it's deceiving you into thinking you're choosing when in reality you're making a choice that will harm you either way. That is, in my opinion, the definition of evil. If evil exists, it's the idea that there's no choice. Um, that was the basis of all things, liberty and choice. It was, uh, it was Christ's law of, cho- of choice. It was God's law of choice. It was called being, uh, having uh, free will and doing what uh, you know you can uh, to learn, and all the opposition was there to teach you a lesson. But to remove the opposition or to offer the opposition and making it look like it is the right thing for you to do is evil, in my opinion. And that's what I think is going on in government. That's what I think is going on with the two-party system. It's not a choice, and it's the biggest evil of all. And I have, I have denounced it from the get-go, and people think I'm crazy, and they're trying to pin me on a political belief. I don't have a political belief, really, and I don't want one. I don't want to participate in the political cult. I don't want to, because I think it is a cult. I think it's a, it's a dangerous cult, and it, and it works on the dangerous, uh, destructive group dynamics that we've been warned about to stay away from, but people love to indulge in it, and they love to, to uh, judge people, prejudice people by where they stay stand on their views. Uh, it's all or nothing now. It's the idea that, well, if I say I'm for gay marriage, then I must be liberal. No, I'm just for people loving each other. Or if you say, well, I'm against this, or I don't like what Obama's doing. Well, you must be a conservative. No, I'm not a conservative. I just yeah. hate my president doing what he's doing. I'm disgusted at what he's doing. I don't like the fact. And so I've, I've decided that I'm just going to completely, uh, uh, I've decided now that I'm just going to admit, you know, Barack Obama is a remarkable dictator. Uh, he's learned how to become a dictator that goes unopposed. And I'm really marveling at this because I'm looking at it from a historical perspective. I think having uh, our first dictator in the country is amazing to watch. And, and it's amazing watching how the people react to this suave and sophisticated, smart and wonderful dictator that we have. And I don't mean that in a bad way or a good way. I just mean, hey, pay attention. That's what he's doing. And, uh, you know, this is what this is what uh, we're allowing to happen. We have not stepped in and said, stop. We love our slavery. We love this. Otherwise, we do something about it. I remember years ago, we were talking about the last election before President Obama's first term, and you told me, I voted for Bush, but my president did not win. Mm-hmm. You accepted. I'm not a party person. Mm-hmm. I voted on the individual, but I lost my faith in politics. It's all rigged. Yeah, that's what I did, too. I mean, people always say, well, when did you lose your faith in politics? I says, well, back in the 2000 election, uh, the guy I voted for didn't win. I go, oh, Al Gore. I said, no. George W. Bush. And they go, what? I go, George W. Bush didn't win the election, people. Um, and uh, I noticed that they basically rigged it and, uh, and forced this guy in. And, uh, and I said, you know, I'm a person who believes in fairness. I'm a person who believes in things happening fairly. And if my guy loses, I am a good loser. I have been taught to be a good loser. And I was willing to be a good loser. But then when they forced him on me saying, well, he won and he didn't win, and I saw that he didn't win, then I realized, you know what? I've been had. This is not real. This is all a farce. And I believed in the lie for too long. And I'm still Stopping, I've stopped myself from believing in the lie. And I have to say, it's exhausting to watch the two plus years of, of politics leading to the election. I mean, what is it? $6.5 billion dollars Clyde spent into politics. Imagine what we can do with $6.5 billion. dollars. Oh, yeah. And I just heard, Lisa, I didn't know this. In Canada, they're only allowed to campaign for 30 days before the election. Imagine if we could do that here. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, I, I just, I agree. I, there are people who are, I mean, and they also allow different parties, but we've narrowed it down to two. That's where it goes back to the idea. It's evil to think that we have a choice when we don't. They pared it down to two people that they feel, I mean, they're forced cards. These are forced cards on us. We are, we are being forced to pick between the lesser of two evils. Now, how is it that we've been pushed to this point where we're saying, okay, I'll accept evil, but there's one evil that I'll accept more than the other evil. Evil is evil. When did we decide that the, 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 the pathocracy was so wonderful that we could adjust the evil to fit our needs or to at least fit what our party tells us to do? That's the thing is that, what, you let a party dictate your life? You, you let a political agenda rule your life and, and you turn it into your spirituality? That is demonic. I think that if you let a political viewpoint create your spirituality, you are under the influence of a very, very evil, diabolical spirit. Do you really think that the United States of America is really independent? No. No. No, we are not independent by any stretch of the imagination. I think that American exceptionalism is a myth. And I used to believe in it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, just to say that you know American exceptionalism is is uh, saying, well, you're not patriotic. No, I'm very patriotic. That's why I'm fighting for the America that was. I believe in the metaphor of America. America is now a metaphor, a lost metaphor. And I think that if we get back to the real metaphor of America, we'll be a lot happier. But no, we've lost the metaphor. Uh, American exceptionalism is dead. It's a myth. Um, saying that America is the only free country is a myth. There are at least 247 countries out there that believe that they're, they're free. Um, some of them are more freer than others. Some of them live under socialist rule. I think that, uh, you know, constitutional law is being, uh, uh, you know, pardon the expression, aborted. Uh, the Constitution is no longer important to the politicians. They bend it. They, they, they destroy it. They kick it around. People think that, you know, it's all working. That's the problem. They think it's all going to work out. And the truth is, is, like I said before, we all go back to the idea of cancer. America has cancer. And we're in denial of that cancer. And if you're in denial for too long, you die. Uh, I learned that because I was in denial of my cancer. And then they told me, you know, you only got a few months to live, dude. I suggest you wake up and go to the hospital and get these experimental operations done on you. Because if you don't get it done, you're going to die. You're going to have to... You have to go through all kinds of other horrible things before you do die. I said, okay, I'll go through the pain. The pain is going to be there, but the pain goes away. Americans have to understand we have to go through pain. Pain goes away. But, you know, the sacrifice and pain that is coming is going to be at the hands of the politicians that rule over us. We should be able to choose what pain and what and what we want to go through to get to that point in time where we're back to where we were. But the thing is, nobody's willing to to make the first step. They're all willing to just let somebody else do it. Somebody's got to do it. I hear that all the time. I wish somebody would get get this thing going, get this ball rolling. And I'd say to the person who says that, I says, okay, get in line. Do you want to do it? That's right. They go, oh, no. I was hoping you'd do it. I go, I'm just a talk show host. That's all I do. I come in, I look over the news, and I report what I see, and I talk about it. We talk together. I'm no guy that's going to go in and, and take on the government. I'm no guy that's going to go in and take on a legislature. I'm not a guy that does that. I'm supposed to be the fourth estate. And that's another thing, too. We don't have a fourth estate in this country anymore. Um, we used to have a fourth estate that kept the empire honest. 
we had a fourth estate that would reveal criminal activity. It's not happening anymore. If Woodward and Bernstein were alive today, they would be considered, I mean, I'm not alive, but if they were, you know, basically doing what they did with Nixon, they, they would be, they would be called conspiracy theorists. You know, it was a conspiracy theory that this was going on at the Watergate Hotel. Nobody had any proof unless they, they had this guy named Deep Throat that was giving them the information. Finally, it all checked out. They said, wow, we got a story that's going to take a president out. And now, would that be done now? No. If somebody said, oh, by the way, uh, you know, Barack Obama does this, Barack Obama does that. I mean, hell, you look at people that said, well, what about his birth certificate? Oh, it's all nonsense. You know, you're going, well, uh, what if it's not nonsense? Well, it is. Don't even think about it. Well, it, you know, what if it? What if it is real? You know, nobody even entertains the idea that people who are in power are there, and they got there by cheating, lying, and stealing. It happens all the time. Nice guys finish last. It works. That's what happens. And so these guys aren't nice guys. They don't have the same morality you and I have. I mean, they can wake up every day. They can walk downstairs, put on their shoes, pour themselves a bowl of Wheaties, look in the paper, and notice they've killed nearly thirty thousand people in a country using a drone. Yeah, they, they won't think twice about having some kid playing a video game in Las Vegas, sipping a big gulp, eating a donut, blowing up somebody in Yemen. They don't care about that. That's the way they think. You have to be a, a, a different type of scoundrel to be in Washington, in my opinion. We're fortunate to have you that you beat cancer. If somebody sees Clyde Lewis that beat cancer, and, and God, heaven forbid, anybody who's listening gets the same cancer, I want to know how you did it to, to beat it. The same thing happens. Take uh, uh, Iceland as an example. Uh -huh. You know, if it's cancer, what's plaguing the United States, Iceland got the proverbial cancer. They get out of it. They put all their bankers into jail. They completely turned the government upside down. And now their economy is growing. Why can't we learn from them? And why can't we act like them? Because we don't accept it. See, the reason why I beat cancer is because I accepted my death. Plain and simple. I uh, I was ready to die, to be honest. Um, people always say he battled cancer. Cancer, uh, he a valiant battle. Nobody battles cancer. They really, I mean, people. You know, that's a, that's what's what people who don't have cancer say about people who die of cancer. They had a valiant fight with cancer. No, they died. Uh, and and can <laughs> cancer patients feel that way. Literally, they think, well, you have to accept your death before you start beating it. And um, I did. I saw my tombstone. And I was so certain that I was going to die. I made a movie before I died or before I thought I was going to die. Uh, it was called Word Speaker. And it was just basically my goodbye to my fans and people who cared about me. If anybody did care, it was just my way of saying goodbye to everybody. Um, in fact, I was so afraid of dying that I kissed the anesthesiologist because I thought, I thought she was the most beautiful woman I ever saw. But then again, I was under the influence of drugs. But... Um, I actually kissed her before I went under the I went under the knife. I said I said to her before I went under. I said, you know, you're the most beautiful woman I'm probably going to see before I come out of this. If I do come out of it, and if I don't, I want to be able to say that I kissed a beautiful woman before I left this planet. And I did. I kissed her, but then I came to, and then I met her husband. And luckily, he was a fan of my show. Otherwise, he probably would have killed me. But it, it's <laughs> it's. Um, it's that's the thing is that you have to accept or you have to at least see your name on a tombstone and and once you see your name on that it, it it's that it's that moment that Ebenezer Scrooge had when the ghost of Christmas future pointed his finger at the tombstone and Ebenezer goes oh my gosh is this what's going to happen to me I'm going to die a lonely unhappy old man or am I going to make my life better 
I think we all need to face our tombstone in order for us to change. Uh, and I know that's going to sound weird, and, and, and a lot of people say, oh, that's so that's so terrible, but, you know, it does change people. I always tell people that zombies make great motivators in graveyards, and they say, what does that mean? I said, well, if you're in a six-foot hole and you can't find yourself out of it, if you hear somebody else say, I can't get out, you'll jump out of that as soon as possible. Uh, if you think of zombies after, you'll run like hell to get away from that zombie. Um, and that's the thing is that uh, we should take a look at the metaphors and the representations we're seeing now as warnings and and uh, precautionary tales that this is what we don't want. But however, people, I don't know if it's working anymore. I don't know if precautionary tales work. People still do what they do and, you know, they'll, they'll still smoke even after they get cancer and they'll still do the things that brought them there in the first place. So, you know, history, once again, either repeats itself or it rhymes. I don't know which it does, but it certainly is something that we need to pay attention. And sometimes in doing what we do, sometimes we get uh, perhaps a bit too close to the truth, uh, Clyde, and you know this. Yeah. I also know that you had some encounters and some subversion, some attacks. Can you discuss this? Well, I had an attack on me. My first uh, real attack on me was when my car was bombed uh, when I was in Salt Lake City. Uh, I was doing my show, and it was back then I was a little bit more careless and a more... I guess you could say I was I was young and stupid and realized and thought that I had everything, you know, I have the First Amendment on my side, I have all these things on my side and uh and, illusion. I, and and you know and and I I thought that I was invincible and uh and see I I find that interesting too that you're not invincible. I just had a threat given to me the other day. Um I was exploring something and I had somebody from quote an alphabet agency send me a note saying cease and desist talking about this and I I kind of looked at that and I thought, oh, hell, here we go again. But it was funny because I said to my audience, I said, I don't know if I should talk about this and everything. And somebody had posted on my Facebook page, well, if you really, really cared about us, you'd tell us. And I thought, excuse me? Uh, you know, I don't want to die. You know, what? Am I, am I going to die telling you this? Is it worth dying for us, this information? Or can we wait until I can find a way to break it to you gently? And uh, I just thought to myself, this is not a game. You know, people tend to think that you know, people like you and people like me who talk about it. This is not a game. We're doing this because we feel we have a responsibility. We're the weathermen. We see the storms coming and we want to predict the storms, but we certainly not want to go out in the storm and get struck by lightning. That's not our job. We're not here to die. We're here to report. We're here to expound. We're here to exhort. We're here to get people enthusiastic about thinking again. And I just I just think that, you know, for some reason we've got a few talk show hosts out there that think that, you know, you know, they're crusading for some sort of noble cause. Taking the world and putting it on your shoulders is going to kill you and it's going to ruin everybody in your life. I'm not going to take people down with me. I'm not some, you know, and that's another thing about this this movie I made, Word Speaker, before I, I, I thought I was going to die. I actually, the story was about a talk show host that wouldn't give up. It was about a talk show host that uh, actually was doing a show and didn't realize he had died. That he'd already died, and he was still doing a show because you know he thought, well, I got to do this every day. He was dead, and he was still doing a show. He had died a long time ago, and yet his ghost kept doing the show over and over again because he thought that's what he was supposed to do because it was his crusade to get the word out even after he died. See, sometimes we just got to know when to back off. Sometimes we just got to know when it's time to just let everything go and just wait for the things to transpire. And most people think, well, no, it's your job. You're the one that's doing this. I live vicariously through you. Now, whatever happened to your responsibility? 
whatever happened to taking my information that I give to you and spreading that information and you be the person who is the legacy. You are my legacy because you listen to my show. You, I mean, Mel Fabregas is the man who is going out and telling people about this and he's bringing on guests and rallying people around who are like-minded and those who are listening to the show right now, it is their part to continue that legacy of telling the story because once the story stops being told, it gets ignored and we forget. It's been said before, the best way to ignore God, the best way to kill God is to ignore him. The best way to kill these stories is to ignore them and not do something about them. Absolutely. And I love that analogy about the weatherman. It, what, what topic, if you're okay by saying it, what topic were you told to cease in the system? Uh, my latest one I talked about, I did a story last night about the doomsday scenarios that they were proposing for this fiscal cliff. And I had said that I, I was under the opinion that they use such phraseology as doomsday. I felt it was wrong. Um, and uh, there were a number of things that I wanted to produce or say that, uh, you know, and, and they said it would be, a, a, it'd be a probably harm, harmful for national security if I was to say this because they were, under, they were investigating some of the things I've been talking about. And I don't think they want the public to know that just how close to the tipping point we are right now in this country. And uh, believe it or not, the tipping point uh, has been forecasted for the 21st of December, which uh, I'm finding very, very, uh, you know, uh, kind of sad, actually, <laughs> that, that, that they're going to be probably, uh, that they're actually, uh, you know, exploiting. I mean, what, last night I was in the midst of talking about this very thing, and they were loading the sarin gas in Syria. I, no. I'm sitting here saying to myself, I can't believe that, you know, I can't say say that, uh, that these things are happening, and, uh, and yet they're loading gas in Syria, and they're reporting this. I mean, I'd hate to be waking up on December 21st, 2012, to a, a, a green chlorine gas cloud over my city because nobody paid attention to what was going on in the world. You know, my wife, almost on a daily basis, she doesn't listen to a lot of the stuff, but, but by osmosis, she gets uh, exposed. And every day, she comes to me and says, are you sure? that nothing's going to happen on December 21st, 2012. And I keep telling her, look, I don't have all the information to make either determination. But then a friend of hers sent her a NASA website the other day saying that nothing's going to happen. And I just laughed. And she asked me why I was laughing. And I was saying, NASA is telling you, you believe it. Anyway, I told her I'm more concerned about the financial crisis that we're experiencing here. $16 trillion. Yep. This is absolutely unsustainable. I think... A catastrophe may happen financially before any Mayan uh, prediction or Hopi prediction or any prediction that the ancient ones were talking about. Oh, I know. We need to we need to take our catastrophes as they come. I mean, <laughs> I mean you know, each one each one is dealt with us, and each one has a certain significance, and each one has a synchronicity all unique to itself. And I sit there and I just look at them from, uh, I, I, I strap myself in and say, hey, it's business as usual in the apocalypse and business seems to be good for the elite. Uh, I, I say, you know, let the apocalypse come and, and the more we see the truth, the more we may be able to stop it. And if not, then it's been a great ride. I, I'm enjoying my life. I'm enjoying it. And I believe that people should not live in fear. And when people accuse me of fear mongering, when I talk about this stuff, I say to them, what, it scares you? What, you, you, you think this is something that hasn't been considered by the elite? This hasn't been considered by 
by other people and you're scared? Come on. I've had people call me and say, well, what happens if, uh, you know, the new world order comes? Do I quit my job? No. Look, 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 let me tell you something. I lived in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and that was under the direct, direct rule of the military. Allende was doing what he was doing there. And you know what? I was able to wake up every morning, go to the kiosk, have a cup of coffee, eat a factura, and read the paper. No one bothered me. Every once in a while, though, I had to be careful when I was on buses when there were riots. But you know what? That's what happens when a democracy is losing its power and it's being taken over by a bunch of thugs. I said, look, it's going to happen this way. We're going to wake up every day. We'll put our pants on the same way. We're going to die uh, boring deaths. It's going to happen. And uh, this is, I mean, it happened in Nazi Germany, too. I mean, when Nazi Germany, people woke up every day. They went about their business, business as usual. The only thing is, is every once in a while, there were riots, bombings, and all kinds of other things going on. You know, get used to it. This is the future. And it's because our leaders are are actually uh, pathological, uh, scary, and, and, and we need to be aware of it. What I tell people when they ask me, are you concerned about the end of the world? I tell them, I'm not. I'm more concerned that the world is going to stay the same. If we stay the same, then the world will end. <laughs> well, the world does stay the same usually. I mean, it's just, a, it's just a, now we have ways of making it more scary. Um, I think drones are the scariest thing that ever uh, were invented. And I tell people that I think drones are horrible. But you know what they say? They say, well, it's good for them to use on them. But when they come being used on us, we don't like it. And I said, you know what? Right. This is so hypocritical. You know what? We can go and take out a bunch of, we can take out a wedding party in Yemen, kill a bunch of kids in Yemen with these drones. And it's okay by you. But the minute they come over to the United States and they're flying over your city, you're, you're objecting to it? What? How hypocritical is that? You know, you bring an evil into the world and then when they decide to introduce the evil to you and you reject it just because other people are experiencing that evil, that's nuts. And I tell people, you know, drones are horrible. They're creating the Skynet. And if you want them in your, in your place, keep asking for them to go other places and kill people because that just gives them carte blanche to kill you. And we have to take our one and only intermission, but you, you mentioned Skynet. I didn't know that you were pursuing uh, this story as well. Can you talk about Skynet and, and the uh, Utah data center for the NSA that's coming up soon? Sure, I can talk about that too. Yeah. Okay. Folks, you have to. You have to listen to, to Ground Zero. I'm telling you, when I listened to Clyde the first time, it's the combination of your delivery method, your charisma, and your intellect. You put those together, Clyde... And you definitely have a big, big responsibility on your shoulders. So when we come back, I want you to tell us more. But how do people become more exposed to your work? Uh, GroundZeroMedia.org is my website. GroundZeroMedia.org. There, uh, there are also podcasts available on iTunes, podcasts on the website as well. I write articles every day uh, badly, but I write them. They're my thoughts. I put them down as quick as I can because I have to write them in an hour and a half before I go on the air. Um, and I, <laughs> I just... I, I just, uh, I'm a guy who doesn't know how to shut up. So, I mean, if you if you like a guy that doesn't know how to shut up and is willing to listen, that's okay. I'm, I'm here and I'm available, groundzeromedia.org. I'm also on 157 stations across the country. So I'm pretty excited about that too. Congratulations. And you're the number one talk show in uh, Portland right now, am I right? Yeah, and, and in Houston and in Phoenix and in Cleveland, Ohio, believe it or not. I'm, I'm actually number one in those markets and I'm pretty happy about that. That was only in three months' time. That's, that's great. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Clyde Lewis from Ground Zero, and we have so much more to explore. We just scratched the surface, just the tip of the iceberg, so don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link. 
to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the members section. Enjoy. This is Max Egan and you are listening to Veritas. Mm-hmm. 